We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Maureen O'Shaughnessy on the program today. She is a career school educator with over 30 years of transforming learning in schools to better serve all students. Sounds like she's right up my alley, doesn't she? She is the founding director of Leadership Preparatory Academy, a nonprofit progressive micro school in Washington State. With a master's degree in educational administration and a doctorate in educational leadership, she has an extensive understanding of the components needed to transform the education system. Her book, Creating Micro Schools for Colorful Mismatched Kids, a step-by-step process that empowers frustrated parents to innovate education includes a step-by-step process for how to start a micro school of your own. Most of you are regular public school principals who are listening, and there are a few different kind of people listening, but I mentioned a few weeks ago on episode 350 that I'm having these different voices come in because what we have to recognize is that education is changing, especially with the pandemic, and families are finding other ways to deal with teaching their children. And rather than being afraid of those and turning away or saying bad things about them, what we need to do is embrace all the learning that can happen in our communities 
and do our best to support every family, no matter what it is that they're doing for education. Maureen, with that rather long introduction, longer than it usually is, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thank you, Jethro. I am really excited to talk with you. As I just mentioned, education is changing before our very eyes, but the reality is that it's been changing for a long time, and families have always gone out of their way to find the education that works for them. This is not something that's brand new just because of the pandemic, but there are a lot of other things going on. So tell us a little bit about your educational journey, the things that you've done, and what got you to where you're at today. I guess I've always liked coming up with new possibilities and supporting new programs, gifted, special needs. I started a school within a school when I was a teacher in a large high school that had over 700 kids in each grade. Went off and did some things overseas as a school leader. Came back for my girls to have high school in the U.S. And that's when I was totally taken by surprise. I could not find a good fit for either of my daughters. I just helped them graduate early in 2013 and then pivoted to open my own micro school that could be more responsive than what I could find out there after trying six or seven different models for my daughters. So I was on fire to create a change. Yeah, that's amazing to not be able to find something for your daughters and looking at so many different options. So what was it about the school that you started, which is uh, Leadership Preparatory Academy? What was it that you were looking for that you couldn't find anywhere else? Just a school that could meet each student where they are. So could make it a little faster or give them a little more voice or slow it down a bit. Just not say, oh, you were born on this date, so you need to be in this place in math, this place in English, and everybody needs to do exactly the same work and in a passive learning setting. So anything that would acknowledge the students and give them a voice and meet them where they are. Yeah, that sounds like a really simple request, and yet that's so hard for us to do because our system is not designed to do that. It's designed to do exactly what you said. You're born on a certain day, and this is the way that you're going to go. And so how is Leadership Preparatory Academy different than that? What is it that you do? One, we're an independent school with a, a sliding scale tuition, so we don't have to meet all of the state laws. We don't have to do state testing. We don't have that same lockstep piece. We can use alternative learning laws in terms of breaking credits down in different ways. We assess, and if you know something, we move you on. If you don't, we wait and keep working with you until you have mastery, until your competencies have been met. It's geared to students thriving and being ready for the next step and moving ahead if they're already ready and not having to wait for their classmates, which sounds obvious, but big systems don't have that flexibility. It makes it so that schools don't have that flexibility. What prevents them from being flexible like that? Because with all the money, with all the adults in the building, you think they should be able to do that pretty easily, but you're right, they can't. Prior to this, I was principal of a, a high school with a thousand kids and a hundred teachers. and really it becomes so lockstep and we've actually made the system sacred. Wait, you have to have this before you can have that. And you can only start algebra at the beginning of the school year. If you come in and have half of algebra completed in September, um, sorry, our system is sacred and, and you can't start midway through algebra in September. So we have all these things that are just rigidly in place and we don't really have 
incentives to change it. And we don't have time and space in a lot of schools to change it, but they're nonsensical. And if teachers had a chance and had smaller classes or more time to plan and redesign, then they would go, yeah, kids should get a start wherever they're assessed at. And assessment should be formative and ongoing and not just summative and not just a postmortem as a kid ends a class. I think it's really the system has become just black and white especially in adolescence, it's never that way again. Elementary is gentler. And then college and beyond, we have so many choices, but we say, no, middle school, high school, lockstep. It's this way. And when then we watch them crash and burn. Yeah. I was in a situation where I was fortunate to be able to skip seventh grade. And I remember being very frustrated that they would not let me take algebra because I hadn't taken pre-algebra first. They took a kid who was already skipping a grade and jumped through the hoops to make that happen, of which there are many hoops to be able to do that, and who seemingly was motivated to work hard and figure out what he didn't know. And they said, no, you can't do it. There's no way around it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And there was no way for me to to take algebra in eighth grade. Now, I didn't know any better. I didn't know what that even meant. I didn't know what algebra was, (laughs) but Uh I thought this is what other eighth graders take. So why should I not be able to do it? And what's so fascinating to me is that because of that denial, I was in class with mostly eighth graders, but those who in my school who weren't meeting what they should and were basically in a remedial class. And so you have this kid who skipped a grade who's now in a remedial class. And that just didn't jive with what I thought should be happening. And I thought I should be with the other kids who who can do this kind of work. And it was really interesting to me to go through that and experience that. But I learned at that point that exceptions do not happen and they don't want them to happen. They were not happy that I was skipping a grade because I was messing up the thing. And because they were so adamant about math, they showed that math was more important. Their version of what math looked like was more important than what I felt I could do or what I felt I could achieve. And from that point on, that same attitude continued where their system was more important than me as a person. And when I became an educator, I decided that I wasn't going to let that system be more important than the kids that were in front of me. It wasn't that hard to do as a teacher and as a principal, but it was more hard bucking against the system. Like you said, the system is sacred and we can't disrupt it or upset it in any way, shape or form. And that's really tough because there are a lot of kids who don't fit in our traditional education system. And we have to be able to serve them when they just show up at our schools, but we're not designed to be able to do that. So what advice would you have for a principal who has kids that don't fit the system? How would you recommend they go about changing things to make it meaningful for those kids. Jethro, I think we have to have a reason to make changes. It has to be important enough to us. And what you hit on, you said the system was more important than you as a learner. They didn't look at you, a gifted kid. They put you in a remedial class because the system was more important than the human. And I think if we get to the meaning behind that, we're basically saying our system is inhumane. It's not looking at the human. And that sounds really harsh, but it's true. And 
if we really look at the end product principles, we know we want kids that are going to go out in the world and be kind and caring and make a difference. And hate crimes and serial murders are at an all-time high. And what are we doing in schools to love kids up and to model valuing every human? So I think as an educator, when I look at that and say, whoa, we're not, we're a part of the inhumane system that produces these people that go out and don't feel valued, it's, wow, we have a crisis. So forget, are they getting into the right college? Do they have the right SAT score, these academic pieces? Do we really want to create these unvalued widgets that go out and don't have a sense of humanity and that keep hate crimes going up? I think... Principals need to really examine their hearts, and then we all just need to suck it up and say, so what am I going to do to buck the system? It's always been hard to be a change agent, and it's always been unpopular. But if we're like, no, I will not perpetuate a system, just like the people that said, I will not let child labor be the way it was 100 years ago. I will not let education be the way it is now. It takes people bucking the system saying, no, black lives do matter. This matters. It's always taken a fight to change the status quo. And we have to believe our kids and humanity matter enough to really be able to drive the change. Those words that we are part of the inhumane system, I think, cause some people to take a sharp breath and say, wait, am I being inhumane? And I would really challenge you, if you're listening, to really think about that. And if you're not, then to really accentuate and highlight the parts where you're not being inhumane and focus on being more humane and doing more of those things. Because I, I don't think what you're saying is that people who are out there are evil because they're in the regular system, but the system has created a situation where often the system is more important than the students are. And that happens with teachers as well. A lot of the the stuff with COVID right now where teachers are, are going back into school, I just read a thing on, on Twitter where somebody, they had a medical condition, but because they the medical condition wasn't on the list of things that make you more susceptible to COVID, they weren't given the opportunity to not be in person. And talk about an inhumane system wow. that is making someone who doesn't want to be at work because they don't want to get sick still has to go in to work. And again, putting the system above the people, that's not good. So Jessica, I'm going I'm I'm to stop you right there because I completely agree. And I know my words are strong. I think we need to gently examine ourselves. I am gently examining myself. Am I racist? What does it mean to be anti-racist? We're all being called to look at institutions, to look at racism, to look at inequity, to look at achievement gaps. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And I know I have tons of room to grow. So this can't be defensive. I'm right. I'm wrong. It's got to be self-examination and growth so that we can change a model that's outdated and, and it's not serving us. So I don't want it to be those bad people out in schools. It's all of us evolving. I want to add that I, I was guilty of that at one point in my career as well. As a principal, I would say if you did something wrong or got in a fight during the last week of school, no matter what the usual penalty was or the usual uh, suspension was, you were suspended for the rest of the school year. And it took me a long time to recognize that was really harmful to those kids who who may never see any of those other people again. I took a hard line because I didn't want to have to deal with the 
drama and the challenges of kids fighting at the end of the school year. And I thought that would prevent kids from doing that. And I focused more on maintaining the peace and comfort of the school than I focused on serving the kids that were in front of me. And do I regret that? I sure do. In fact, it's difficult to even talk about because Uh. I was doing the exact thing that I didn't want to do. And I changed in other ways, but that piece stuck with me for much too long, in my opinion. And you're right, we do have to re-examine ourselves. And it's difficult because the system doesn't allow for us to do that very well, doesn't allow for us to change things. And so we need to be able to empower teachers and students to take charge of their own learning. And how do we do that when it comes to just the learning aspect of life in school? How do we empower them to make their own changes? Oh my gosh. I I think that agency is everything for teachers and students, giving them voice and choice. So do you have a group of passionate teachers that maybe they're doing flipped classrooms and would love to band together and have a school within a school that is flipped classrooms? Maybe they want to keep them and loop them and have them two years to slow down the change and to really keep relationships going strong. Maybe they want to have a group and then band together and do interdisciplinary projects that tie in the science and the math and and some art in there. And if we can let teachers go with passions and create, it's still the same number of teachers, students, classrooms. It's doable with the existing resources. It takes some creativity. But when we let people go with their passions, they'll work so much harder. And then let students, hey, we want to be a part of that microschooler, or we want to have more Socratic conversations in our humanities class, or we want to get activism woven into something that we can get credit for. If there are ways that we can take people's ideas, students and teachers, validate them, let them go with their passions, it'll be messy. But in any learner-centered environment, take a Montessori class. You walk in and where's the teacher? Who's the teacher? All these kids are doing all these different things and it's not necessarily quiet or organized and amazing learning is happening. So we have to let go of control and teacher driven and silence and order and really get into the heart of learning and and people have to have a voice in that. They really do. And if we don't have a voice in that, it makes it, it makes it more challenging to make those changes because that can't all be top-down driven. We need to allow them to come up with their own ideas. And I love just the few that you shared there. I wish that we would have known each other a couple of years ago when I was <laughs> principal of Fairbanks, where we, we had these students who were doing these individual projects. And we basically gave them time during the day that was intentionally not tied to any class because we found anytime we tried to give them voice and choice and it was tied to a class, it always revolved around that class because the teachers were saying, I'm teaching history, so this has to do with history. And so what we said was, here's your hour and 45 minutes twice a week that is not attached to any class and you do something cool at that time to make the world a better place. And let me tell you, these kids just went crazy and did some amazing things that people on the podcast are probably sick of me talking about, but (laughs) they were so cool. Because the kids learned so much more than they would have if we would have said, here's what you need to learn. It was just amazing. And so that's where I want to talk about another issue is interdisciplinary learning and how you incorporate that into the classroom. Because that is a big piece where there's so much that you can learn with other content and you don't have to just learn about writing in English class. Writing is an effective communication tool 
no matter what you're doing. And so how do you get those as a first step, get those interdisciplinary learning opportunities to happen within a school? Well, we all know there are those people that are out in front of the herd. I'll take it on. I think we really need to harness some of their energy, the ones that are trailblazers, and let them do it according to their passion. So maybe it's the traditional English social studies combination that becomes humanities. But if there are a couple of teachers say, hey, I could see how we could team up and make this happen, or I'm a passionate English teacher and I want writing across the curriculum and I want to come in and do mini workshops in every subject area once during the quarter. If we ask, hey guys, what could it look like at our school? Who has a passion? Who might want to lead this? Then we have to be able to give release time or a stipend for extra planning. We can't keep adding on to teachers' plates. They're really full already, but give them some time and Let them. I I love your design process because there's going to be failures and that's an important part of the design process. And you talked about that wonderfully in your book. And we have to let them figure out what works, what doesn't iterate, keep going and don't expect that it's going to be perfect right away. And sometimes our students learn so much more from seeing their teachers fail than from seeing something that's picture perfect. So let's ask those teachers, where could we do this? What would it need? And how can I help you make that happen? John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Yeah, so let's shift a little bit and talk about micro schools in particular. If you would just first describe what a micro school is, and then we'll talk about how we can start supporting them in our schools and districts and maybe creating our own. Sure. So micro school is just small school. Oftentimes, some characteristics are maybe it's 50 students or less, multi-age, more student and learner-driven, more hands-on learning, more experiential real-world context. Sometimes it's like the one-room schoolhouse back in Little House on the Prairie era. So it can be a lot of things. Where we're located, the local school district has choice schools that are lottery-based, that are tiny, like one, a middle school with one sixth, one seventh, one eighth, an environmental one, one that's based on Latin, one that's hands-on learning. And there are waiting lists out the door for these choice schools, and it's a lottery system. 
and hundreds of kids each year do not get into those. But that tells us there's a need, there's a desire. So it could be a choice school or it could be a school within a school. A lot of large high schools have already a small school. Maybe it's an alternative school within their regular doors or maybe they have like we call it running start or um, skill center. So maybe there's like a pre-nursing program or something that's inside their school. So it already exists. We just need to keep making more options until every kid is thriving. And smaller is usually easier than flipping a school of 2000 kids. Yes, I, that is so true. That's a, that's a great way to describe that. And so if you think about that from just a regular principal of a school perspective, what kinds of silos could you break down to get to a school that serves a specific group of kids? And if we start at the high school level, I mentioned before we started recording in my last district, the the failure rate of our students. We had a, a third of our students that semester who had an F grade, which is just mind-boggling crazy that that many students would be failing. There's not a lot of recourse for them once they start failing in high school because you don't get credit for that class, then you have to retake the class. And so one of the things that we did is we redefined, this was like, in my opinion, my crowning achievement as I left (laughs) that district was redefining what summer school looked like. So this, and this was during the pandemic still. So we said, okay, we're going to take all these kids who failed these classes first semester and pretty much nobody should have failed a class second semester because of the coronavirus. So all these kids that failed the first semester, and we're going to change how we do summer school. And we're going to go into the grade book. We're going to find what they missed. And, and we're going to target the kids who had a 50 to 60% in that class. And then we're going to spend the summer school time just making sure that they get enough to get a grade so that they have credit. Because if they're failing that class, we saw that many kids were doing poorly in other classes. These aren't going to be valedictorians. And we're just going to get them enough so that they don't have to retake the whole entire class. And it was amazing to me how much pushback there was. One person that I interviewed for the job, she said, I just can't morally get behind that because we're lowering the bar for these kids. And I was like, look, the bar's already low. These kids have already mm-hmm. given up. They don't want a an A in the class. And she said, I want to be able to give kids an A and I want them to work for that. And I said, that's fine if you want to do that, but that's not the goal of this. The goal of this is to make it so that these kids don't have an F on their transcript and that they have a shot of staying on pace to graduate. And, and so we just changed that perspective for summer school. And that's not a huge change. That's not monumental, but it was enough that people were bothered by that. But we can make little changes to the school to serve specific groups of people. One relatively well-known idea is the idea of when you have a a mom in high school, you adjust how she takes courses so that she can take care of her baby and still finish high school. And you have to make those uh, changes to help people who are in different situations. So with that background, how do we start making that within the school so that it's we're designing different parts of the school for different groups of kids. 
in a micro school type of way. I think it goes <laughs> back to, again, is our institution sacred and we need to challenge our beliefs. So I was an A student in high school and here's what I think or what. It, it, so the example you gave, this person, she's saying if they didn't get this many points and this amount of time, we all know that there are accommodations out there that give people more time. So if you have a student that has 50% of ninth grade English mastered, but that's an F, then truly you just need to give them 10% more or whatever to the passing grade. We have this sense of entitlement that, no, they have to get it all in my class, all 60% in my class in this 90-day window, or they have to start over. And that's not the real world. In the real world, some of us take a long time to get somewhere. Some of us take a short time. If you had me doing a marathon, it would take me so much longer than it would take a lot of other human beings. I would have a different pace. Why we think academics sh should be make it or break it, that's not okay. And if we looked in most states, there are al alternative learning laws. And I, I, like locally, there's an alternative school. I do a lot of work with school leaders and I've done a lot on accreditation and then helping new people start schools. And one of the schools I went to they do one-eighth of a credit, and the law allows that. So if a kid has a three-week, I'm anxious, depressed, or somebody died in my family, they opt out of a three-week window and then come back in, and it's chunked in such small ways that they get the credits. It's not, you have to make it 90 days, sink or swim. It's smaller pieces. We break things down all the time so that we can get a new skill. So why we wouldn't break down the time units and how they go about it and change and accommodate people that need more time, it's really illogical and it's based on us being stuck in our sacred system. And we've got to get out of that. And if we can let a micro school get out of that and maybe run through the summer or maybe have longer days or maybe do projects instead of a written paper to demonstrate knowledge. If we can look at other ways for people to prove their competency and other timelines, then we can start to fill in those gaps and more kids can succeed. Yeah, those are all great suggestions. So how do we start doing that within the system that we have? Because making that kind of change is hard, but it's so necessary and it's so needed. So where do we start? Do we just find a group of kids and say, all right, we're going to start doing this? Or is there a better way to do that? I really think we need to start with the teachers. And you will find those passionate teachers that are like, heck yes, I can totally rethink how we give credit and in timelines. And if they get mastered this number of competencies, whether it's before the deadline or months after the deadline, I can give credit. If we can get teachers that see that and want to do that, then other teachers will follow. Some of us need to see it first and understand it, and we're, we warm up more slowly. So let's go with the ones that get it, that want to do it, but then, again, give them the resources to do it. Don't just say, oh, on top of everything else, can you make this program a year-round program? So start with the people that have the passion and have the vision because we all need to be leaders sometimes and followers other times. One of the things that I used to always say is that my job as a principal is not to put a lid on anybody. And as a teacher, I had a couple of principals who did put lids on me and said, you can't go that far. You have to wait for everybody to catch up to you. And what I tried to do as a principal myself was to say to those teachers who got it and who wanted to take it to the next level, go all out and go do whatever you need to. I'm going to work on lighting a fire under those whose 
who are happy with the status quo and you just go as far and as fast as you want to go and I'll support you the whole way. And what I saw when I did that is that those teachers not only enjoyed their job more, but they also got better results and not just academically, but also emotionally and interacting with the kids and connecting with them. Because as you mentioned before, when you're focused on your passion, your, your satisfaction goes up, your self-worth goes up and all that stuff improves. And so when those things improve with the teacher, then they improve with the kids as well. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing thing to see. So once we get some teachers going in the right direction, the system still exists and it's still going to push back against that. Other teachers are going to say, why is that person doing that? That's not how we do things, et cetera. How do you protect your teachers from the sniping from other teachers that that will inevitably come when they see they're, they're going against the grain? That's huge. That was actually the theme of my doctoral dissertation over 20 years ago. So much pullback to be normal. And there's so much isolation when somebody does something differently. So administrators have to support the heck out of those teachers and have to build communities of support around them. And not as, oh, isn't this my teacher's pet? Isn't this the amazing? But hey, you know what? You're, I hear you in the staff room denigrating this. I think you have some of the same capacity. Would you like for me to cover your class? I will go teach if you'll give me good lesson plans. Then have you spend a class period in there and see what connections? There are going to be people that'll push back, but how can we win them over? How can we support the innovator? Because it's super lonely and scary. And there is fear of the unknown. And people do want to pull people back into the middle of the road. So we as school leaders have to protect those people that are courageously trying something to serve those kids that aren't being fully served right now. Yeah, that that is so true. And it's easy to think that the good ideas will win out, but that is so often not the case. Mm -hmm. That tradition, history, experience is what wins out, even when those things are not what is best for kids. And admittedly, sometimes they are, but that's not always the case. And certainly in my experience, there have been a lot of times where things we were doing in school were actively hurting kids instead of helping them. So we were helping teachers. We were building support around them. How do we manage those innovative things that we're trying to do with the district leaders or parents who may not understand the whole picture? Let's talk about the district side first because they have policies and procedures. And one of the things that I always ran up against was that you couldn't offer a course that wasn't in the course catalog. And it took a year and a half to get the course in the course catalog. And so at a middle school with two grades, by the time we were ready to serve our students. Those students we needed to serve were already in high school. And so just the process was too long and too convoluted for us to do what we needed to help them. So how do you manage that, the district level, in as you're being innovative? I think what works best for me, and I have some, I have a leadership team of teachers at my micro school, and they practice this as well, is when we highlight a problem, we offer a solution. So if you're like, you know what, this doesn't work because a year and a half and kids are gone in two years. So could I rewrite this? Could I listen to you tell me what things need to happen in that year and a half timeline? And then could I craft something that could be a three to six month process that gets the same checklist done 
for your approval. So you're identifying the problem and listening to why it takes this year and a half, what needs to happen, and then creating a different solution. And it also takes having some champions. If you get somebody that is like a rule follower and this is the way it's always been, you're probably banging your head against the wall. But if you can get somebody like, yeah, you do all the footwork, here are all the things that have to happen. And I don't think it can happen. People told me that last summer, you can't write a book in two months. I was like, I have to. School starts at the beginning of September. So if they tell you this is what it takes and you can prove that it can be done, hopefully they would celebrate that and say, okay, go for it. Yeah, and that, that advice I think is really solid. It is the things that need to be done in that time. In my experience with most things that take time is that they take time because the process of all that stuff takes time. But when it comes right down to it, what really needs to happen is usually some very simple things like you mentioned that could be done much faster otherwise. And so they don't, they take that long because that's how long slow things typically take. Mm-hmm. But you can do it differently and you can do it faster if, if you're doing, if you're really focusing on it. Like you said about the book, the first book that I wrote in, uh, in one month and it was super fast and, and went really quick. Mm-hmm. The second book, I started writing it in 2017 and it got published this year, but I didn't Yay. spend those whole, yeah, <laughs> I didn't spend those whole three years writing. It was focused, intense time. And then a lot of sitting around and waiting. It was a different type of approach that for sure you can write a book in two months. It's going to be harder and that's not how it's typically done, but you could definitely do it. It's very possible if that's really what you're focusing on. And that's the same type of approach we need to take as we're adjusting things in our schools for kids is is what actually needs to happen to make this work. And for you, you just need to write that. You need to write every day for two months and then you could be done. And is that pretty much what happened? Absolutely. And then it's also thinking differently. So it wasn't like write something and then give it to somebody else. I was a step ahead. And then my contributing editor was the next step. So on Google Docs would be editing stuff I had just done the day before. And then, so we had four different editing levels going on pretty much simultaneously. So it wasn't like you complete something and then you send it to the next person. We were all doing one day behind each other's steps. So it's rethinking how can we work together? And do we have to wait for one product to be done and then shipped to the next person and then wait and then shipped? So it's thinking about things differently. Yeah. And what I love about that example is that if you do think about things differently, the waiting for like a board, a school board to approve something that can take a long time, but you don't have to wait for them to approve to move on to the next step. And so that was something else we were working on in Fairbanks was creating a a magnet school that was going to be a micro school like what we're talking about, a little bit bigger than micro, I'd say, just like a small school. But we started the process and got approval from the board at checkpoints and they were on board with it and excited to move forward. But we didn't wait for them to say, go to keep moving. And that's a thing that we often think that we need to have permission. And Within your role as a principal, you often have permission to do things that you don't think that you can do, but that you can just start serving kids without waiting for a specific approval from, from the school board or the superintendent. There are a lot of things that you can do to just make things better for kids. And you really should just do that. And it's okay. And sometimes you're going to move too fast and have to take a step back. And other times it's going to work out just fine. So as we're creating, I want to talk a little bit about your school, which is which I mentioned at the beginning, which is 
creating micro schools for colorful mismatched kids. And it has a step-by-step process that empowers frustrated parents to innovate education. How would you prescribe that a principal meets with a frustrated parent and starts talking about being a partner in this kind of like micro school creation? What would your advice be to a principal who's sitting down with a frustrated parent? Wow. If they want to be a part of the change, that's exciting because they can get PTA support, school board support, district support. Parents are a valued stakeholder and they have large voices. So it could be wonderful. I think you'd need to have clearly delineated roles. Who's doing what? Just like on a board, board's not telling you operational pieces, they're doing governance pieces. So you'd need to be clear on that. I think the micro schools I've helped open recently are actually, one's a former educator and one's a counselor. So they're people that are already really connected to kids. So sometimes they have a business background and a kid background and can really be a help. It depends on if you want to use school funding, because then you need to play by all of the school laws and expectations, or if they're trying to do something that doesn't take that funding. But I would definitely listen to them and hear what their concern is, what their solutions are, and then start to think, how can we serve, meet this need, serve this population? Can we do it within our doors? Do we need to have something separate? So I get more information and tap into that passion because whenever we have parents, just like teachers and students, if we have parents with a passion, they can be a huge part of the solution. Great advice. And I would second that and also add that if you can find a way to serve them within your school, even on a part-time basis, it really goes a long way to help them out and help them feel like you care, even if there are certain things that you just don't have the capacity to do. And we've learned with kids who have IEPs that there's a lot of leeway that schools have within the IEP process. And we can do a ton that we didn't think we could do before. And it's just a matter of recognizing that not everything is as set in stone as it may have seemed to be in the past. The final question for you, Maureen, today is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you? I would take my calendar out and make it a reoccurring date to have reflection time and personal growth time. I think our world does not value reflection enough, but if I want to look at what am I doing well, where are my gaps, look at my belief system, I need a regular reflection time. And I would I'd get a nice journal and maybe colored pens or markers. I would start creating time. Where am I strong? Where am I weak? What are my blind spots? Do I want a 360 evaluation to gather anonymous feedback? But we don't, as leaders, take time to reflect. We're so slammed. It's whack-a-mole. So I would build it into my calendar, a weekly time where I can step back and look at myself as a human, myself as a leader, how I want to evolve and have that reflection time. I'd make it at least an hour, a regular time and make it involable that you cannot, it's like, it's a set date. Nothing can interrupt this because taking care of ourselves and taking time for reflection should be just as important as that staff meeting. That's what I'd do. Yeah. Once again, great advice. As we close, would you please take a moment to talk about your podcast as well so that we can make sure that those who are listening here also have a chance to listen to your podcast? 
I would love that. Yes, we're like on episode 27, so nowhere near where you are, Jethro. Educationevolution.org. So it's what's broken, what's fixed, who's fixing it. It's optimistic, and it's really focused on how do we help every student thrive. So sometimes it's a, a neuropsych or sometimes it's a school leader or somebody that just opened their own micro school. So it's a variety of people looking at solutions, flipped learning, place-based learning, all kinds of cool things that are helping learners thrive. So I would welcome having people subscribe and get it every Tuesday. Excellent. Well, there's definitely a link to that in the show notes, and I hope that you'll check that out as well. Maureen, it's been awesome to talk with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. My pleasure. Thank you, Jethro. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, Check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code transformative to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.